1: Thank you for standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the Camico Corporation second quarter 2021 conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to Rochelle Girard, VP, Investor Relations, Treasury and Tax. Please go ahead.
0: Thank you, Operator, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cameco's second quarter conference call. I would like to acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. Today's call will focus on the trends we are seeing in the market and on our strategy. As always, our goal is to be open and transparent with our communications. Therefore, if you have detailed questions about our quarterly financial results or should your questions not be addressed on this call, we will be happy to follow up with you after the call. There are a few ways to contact us. You can reach out to the contacts provided in our news release. You can submit a question through the contact tab on our website or you can use the submit question tab on the webcast and we will be happy to follow up after this call. With us today on the call are Tim Gitzel, President and CEO, Grant Isaac, Senior Vice President and CFO, Brian Riley, Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, Alice Wong, Senior Vice President and Chief Corporate Officer, and Sean Quinn, Senior Vice President, Chief Legal Officer and Corporate Secretary. I'm going to hand it over to Tim to talk about the growing demand for nuclear power, the uranium market fundamentals, and about Cameco's strategy to add long-term value. After, we will open it up for your questions. If you have joined the conference call through our website event page, there are slides available which will be displayed during the call. In addition, for your reference, our quarterly investor handout is available for download in a PDF file on our website at CAMACO.com. Today's conference call is open to all members of the investment community, including the media. During the QA session, please limit yourself to two questions and then return to the queue. Please note that this conference call will include forward-looking information, which is based on a number of assumptions and actual results could differ materially. Please refer to our annual information form and MD&A for more information about the factors that could cause these different results and the assumptions we have made. With that, I will turn it over to Tim.
2: Well, thank you, Rochelle, and welcome to everyone on the call today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. I hope you and your families are doing well and enjoying some rest and relaxation during the summer months. It's certainly the time of year when the uranium market tends to slow down as many participants step away for a summer break. Like I did in previous quarters, I'm going to start this call by reiterating our excitement for the future of the nuclear industry and for our role within that industry. The drivers of our optimism remain the same. First, there's an opportunity for nuclear power to play a pivotal role, as the mega-trend of increasing electrification, while phasing out carbon-intensive sources of energy, continues to take hold around the globe, increasing the certainty of demand for nuclear power with a durability that I don't think we've ever seen before. Second, uranium supply is becoming less certain due to years of persistently low prices. And finally, the execution of our tier one strategy, although driving costs in the near term, ideally positions us to achieve our vision to energize a clean air world and deliver long-term sustainable value. It includes cutting our production below our committed sales volumes, being strategically patient in our marketing activities, conservatively managing our balance sheet, being vertically integrated across the nuclear fuel cycle, and pursuing new opportunities within the nuclear fuel cycle. Let's start with the fundamentals for nuclear energy. We're seeing a mega-trend emerge which is focused on increasing electrification while at the same time achieving massive decarbonization goals. This mega-trend has led to a mega-challenge, that challenge being threefold. First, to bring safe, clean, and reliable baseload electricity to about one-third of the population who currently have no access or limited access to electricity. Second, to clean up and replace our existing sources of electricity with a safe, clean, reliable, affordable, and carbon-free option. And finally, to transition away from the current use of thermal sources of energy for things like transportation and heating. This mega challenge of increasing electrification is occurring precisely while countries and companies around the world are focused on reducing their carbon footprint. Many have committed to achieving net zero carbon targets and many more are expected to follow. And these clean air and climate change commitments, in particular by companies, are creating accountability. In the past we have always been reliant on governments and public policy to take the lead, Now there are more than 1,600 companies who have made net zero commitments and will therefore play a critical role in shaping what energy policy will look like. Companies will no longer just be energy takers, they will be held accountable by their investors and other stakeholders for their performance on ESG metrics, including the carbon footprint of their supply chain, which of course includes energy. And they will need a source that can provide safe, clean, reliable and affordable electricity 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days of the year. And this accountability, or as we like to refer to it as, electron accountability, creates a durability and demand for nuclear we have not seen in previous cycles. In a world where 85% of our electricity still comes from fossil fuel sources, There's no clear pathway to sustainably achieve both electrification and decarbonization while maintaining a stable electricity grid without nuclear in the toolbox. In Europe, we see continued progress toward the inclusion of nuclear in the sustainable finance taxonomy. The European Commission has proposed a supplement to current legislation that, if passed, will confirm nuclear as sustainable. In the U.S., the Biden administration's 2022 fiscal year request for the Department of Energy's nuclear office was about $1.8 billion, which is the largest proposed nuclear investment ever in the U.S. In late June, five U.S. Democratic senators introduced the Zero Emission Nuclear Power Production Credit Act of 2021 that, if enacted, would provide federal production tax credits to support at-risk plants. Furthermore, we're seeing momentum building for non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power, such as the development of small modular reactors and advanced reactors. Bill Gates and the company he co-founded, TerraPower, just announced plans to build a 345-megawatt next-generation reactor at a retiring coal power plant in Wyoming, a proposal which was well received in the state. We at CAMACO are exploring ways to further our reach in these innovative, non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power and the nuclear fuel cycle. For example, we've made an investment in global laser enrichment. We're also participating in the Center for Next Generation Nuclear Technologies with Bruce Power. And we also recently entered a non-binding memorandum of understanding with GEH Hitachi Nuclear Energy and Global Nuclear Fuel Americas to explore several areas of cooperation to advance the commercialization and deployment of its small modular reactors in Canada and around the world. So the outlook for nuclear is very bright and we at Cameco are well positioned to respond to the growing need for nuclear fuel to generate safe, clean, reliable and affordable electricity. Increasing demand for nuclear means increasing demand for uranium. Which brings us to the second factor that I said is driving our growing optimism. Demand for uranium is rising at precisely the same time that supply is becoming less certain. One of the indicators we like to look at to illustrate the opportunity is uncovered requirements. We know that utilities have not been replacing what they consume annually under long-term contracts. Since 2011, about 1.6 billion pounds of uranium have been consumed in reactors and only about half of that, or 800 million pounds, have been placed under long-term contracts. This has led to a growing wedge of uncovered uranium requirements. The wedge is as big as it was back in the early 2000s, which was another period of complacency. And with the recognition of the importance of maintaining the existing nuclear fleet to meet net-zero carbon targets, Reactor life extensions are expected to represent an additional source of near- and medium-term demand. Keep in mind, this is just talking about traditional demand. It does not consider any of the alternative uses of nuclear I talked about earlier. We're also seeing increased demand for uranium from financial funds and junior uranium companies. Through the end of June this year, more than $550 million U.S., has flowed into the uranium market via junior uranium companies and financial funds. This money has been used to purchase approximately 16 million pounds of uranium, with more expected. One of these funds has recently come under new management and transitioned to a uranium trust with a planned at-the-market feature, which it expects will result in more active spot market purchases and improved liquidity and price discovery. We believe there is growing recognition among these players that, statistically, the current uranium price has a much greater likelihood of going up than down. This view is supported by the fundamentals. The growing uncovered requirements are occurring at a time when there are some big question marks about where the uranium will come from to fuel the world's expanding nuclear fleet. Cameco's supply curtailments alone, both planned and unplanned, along with our purchasing activity, have resulted in at least a 145 million pound swing in the supply fundamentals since 2016. And since the end of 2020, we've seen two long-producing mines come to the end of their reserve life. The loss of the Ranger mine in Australia and the Comenac mine in Niger will further reduce supply by about 7 million pounds per year. Our Cigar Lake mine is done about eight years from now, and that's another 18 million pounds per year that will be gone from the market. Given the timelines it takes, we should be investing now to replace that lost production, but at today's prices, it makes zero sense to invest in greenfield projects. In fact, given the persistently low prices, not only have we seen planned supply curtailments, lack of investment, and the end of reserve life for some mines, we've seen shrinking secondary supplies and trade policy issues, all of which have been amplified by unplanned supply disruptions. Consequently, primary supply has become concentrated. Concentrated geographically with about 80% of primary supply coming from countries that consume little to no uranium and nearly 90% of consumption occurring in countries that have little to no primary production. And it is highly concentrated by producer, with about 70% of primary production in the hands of the top five producers, and about 80% in the hands of state-owned enterprises. So we believe that in the current market, the risks to uranium supply are far greater than the risk to uranium demand. These are the fundamentals that get us excited and why we remain a pure-play supplier of the uranium fuel needed to produce clean, carbon-free, baseload electricity. Which brings me to the final factor driving our optimism, our strategy, and why we remain committed to doing what we said we would do. Let me remind you what it is that we said we would do. First and foremost, this is where it all starts for us. We are focused on protecting the health and safety of our workers, their families, and their communities. We're doing that. Every day we make decisions about how best to manage our operations and protect and support our workforce. Earlier this month, we evacuated all non-essential personnel from the Cigar Lake mine and suspended production temporarily due to the proximity of a forest fire. Our fire preparedness was instrumental in successfully protecting our site and assets and the proactive response from our site demonstrated the thoroughness of our risk management. Happily, and thanks to our preparedness, we were able to safely return the workforce to the site on July 4th and production resumed later that week. In addition, we continue to monitor the COVID-19 situation and have regular dialogue with public health authorities. Let me be clear, the health and safety of our workers will always be our priority. We will not hesitate to take further action if we feel our ability to operate safely is compromised. Second, apart from the disruptions to our operations, we have not wavered from the execution of our strategy. There are three fronts on which we are executing our strategy, operational, marketing and financial. On the operational side, we've implemented our planned supply discipline, cutting production well below our delivery commitments. This includes the curtailment of production at Rabbit Lake, our U.S. assets, and of course at the MacArthur River-Key Lake operation. These actions have left a lot of pounds in the ground and kept them off the market. Consequently, we've been purchasing material on the spot market to meet our committed deliveries. In addition, we have shown sales discipline. Sticking to our value strategy, we have been strategically patient, we're seeing our patience pay off and we're continuing to build our contract portfolio. In addition to the 9 million pounds added in April, we successfully finalized and executed a further 7 million pounds under a number of sales contracts, which had been under negotiation bringing the total for the year so far to 16 million pounds. Since 2019, that is a total of over £60 million added to the contract portfolio. It's important to remember that our contracting activity is done within the context of global market realities. The primary driver for our contracting activity is always value. And while having great assets is a necessary condition for creating long-term value, it's not sufficient. The spot market is not the fundamental market in our business, it is a very thinly traded market. In our business, a responsible producer creates real value by building a long-term contract portfolio that supports the operation of productive assets, is leveraged to greater returns as prices increase, and provides downside protection. Therefore, to create long-term value, where appropriate, we layer in volumes over time in accordance with market conditions. We do not want to commit our Tier 1 pounds too far into the future under contracts that won't generate an appropriate portfolio return, and we do not want to exhaust our Tier 1 assets in a low-price environment. As the market improves and we move outside of the carry trade window, we expect to continue to layer in volumes capturing greater upside using market-related pricing mechanisms. We also expect to lock in value at higher prices to carry that value through the next price cycle, always with a view to our preference for a 60-40 split of market-related and fixed price contracts. We continue to have a large pipeline of uranium business under negotiation. In fact, we continue to see off-market interest growing and historically it has been a leading indicator of broader demand for long-term contracting. We're having conversations with many of our customers. These customers recognize the long-term fundamentals. They want access to long-lived Tier 1 productive capacity from commercial suppliers who have a proven operating track record. They understand that from a security of supply perspective, today's prices do not reflect production economics. They recognize the first mover advantage gained from securing their future access to our tier 1 pounds today as opposed to in the future. And we have some competitive advantages. We have significant idle tier 1 capacity that is fully licensed and fully permitted that will be among the first pounds to meet growing demand in the market. We are an independent commercial supplier and provide our customers supply diversity from state-owned enterprises. With substantial Canadian productive capacity, we can help de-risk their future supply from trade policy exposure. And emerging is a focus on ESG matters, which is great news for us. At Cameco, serving the interests of our stakeholders has always been at the heart of what we do, long before there was a focus on ESG issues because it's the right thing to do, and we recognize the significant business value that it adds. Our board and our employees, contractors, communities, suppliers, customers, governments, and our providers of capital, expect us to manage this company in a long-term sustainable fashion. We are very proud of our over 30-year commitment to protect, engage, and support development of our people and their communities, and to protect the environment, so we are well positioned to sustainably meet our customers' needs. And finally, on the financial side, we have been very deliberate in shoring up our balance sheet. At the end of the second quarter, we again were in a negative net debt position, with $1.2 billion in cash, $1 billion in long-term debt, and a $1 billion undrawn credit facility. As such, we have the financial capacity to self-manage risk and maintain our strategic resolve. So I'm happy to say that we're performing well on all three strategic fronts. However, there are costs to our strategic decisions, which are reflected in our financial results and the outlook for 2021. As a mining company, there is significant cost to not operating our mines, which is why having Cigar Lake running is a critical part of our strategy. Yet imagine where the market might be today had we not curtailed supply and purchased uranium. There would be more than £145 million in growing above ground and available to the market. We have made responsible and deliberate decisions to preserve the value of our Tier 1 assets in an oversupplied market and, in the case of Cigar Lake, to protect the health and safety of our workforce. The largest of these costs are for care and maintenance of the assets we have on standby and the cost of the uranium we must purchase to replace lost production. Let's put these costs into perspective. In 2021, care and maintenance costs are expected to represent between $7.40 and $9.35 Canadian per pound. That's about 15 to 20% of our expected average unit cost of sales. And our purchase costs to replace production are expected to be about 20% or $7 Canadian per pound, higher than production costs at Cigar Lake for the past two years further increasing our unit cost of sales. The good news is they do not represent the run rate of our business. We planned with these costs in mind, and we expect much better days ahead once we return to Tier 1 cost structure. We're taking the steps today to support the future restart of our Tier 1 assets and to create a more flexible asset base. We want an asset base that allows us to align our overall production decisions with our contract portfolio commitments and opportunities, that allows us to eliminate the care and maintenance costs incurred while our Tier 1 production is suspended, and that allows us to benefit from the very favourable life of mine economics our assets provide. We are confident in our ability to transition through this period and capture demand that will provide leverage to higher prices. And, we have concluded that we have the right vision, strategy and values to deliver long-term sustainable value. Our vision, which is to energize a clean air world, recognizes that we have an important role to play in enabling the vast reductions in greenhouse gas emissions required to achieve a resilient, net-zero carbon economy. As we seek to achieve our vision, we are committed to doing it in a manner that reflects our values. Those values have not changed, they have always guided our actions and they place a priority on safety in the environment, on building and supporting a flexible, skilled, stable and diverse workforce, on behaving with integrity and leading by example, on promoting equality and acting to eliminate racism wherever it exists, and on pursuing excellence in all that we do and inspiring others to do the same. Our actions are deliberate. We are a responsible, commercially motivated supplier with a diversified portfolio of assets including a Tier 1 production portfolio that is among the best in the world. We are well positioned to take advantage of a market where demand for nuclear power, both traditional and non-traditional, is growing. Where we believe the risk to uranium supply is greater than the risk to uranium demand and where we believe our strategic decisions and strategic patience provide us with resiliency in the face of unprecedented challenges and will result in the rewards that will come from having low-cost supply to deliver into a strengthening market. So thank you for joining our call today and operator with that we would be happy to answer any questions.
1: Thank you, we will now begin the question and answer session. In the interest of time, we ask that you limit your questions to one with one supplemental. If you have additional questions, you are welcome to rejoin the queue. To join the question queue, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Webcast participants are welcome to click on the Submit Question tab near the top of the webcast frame and type their question. The Cameco Investor Relations team will follow up with you by email after the call. Once again, anyone on the conference call who wishes to ask a question may press star one at this time. The first question is from Ralph Profiti from 8
3: Capital. Please go ahead.
5: Hi, good morning thanks for taking my questions Uh, Tim Tim or Grant um, I want to think a little bit more long term in the context of this 16 million pounds year to date uh, and its impact uh, on the contract book because I've noticed that the purchase commitments uh, off that sit off balance sheet haven't really changed sitting at around 20 million pounds at what point does it become prudent to protect the contract book by increasing those longer-dated purchase commitments Uh, Or are you more closely matching future contracting with production capability?
2: Yeah, both, Uh, Ralph. Thanks for the question. Uh, You know, we've been, uh, as we've been reporting quarter on quarter, we've been layering in contracts uh, each quarter over time. I think we said 60 million pounds over the last uh, number of years. I think we have about 19 million pounds per year on average uh, sales over the next five years, more in the front end than the back end. And it's a spot that we like to be in we're we're comfortable where we're at uh, we will going forward want to match uh, our sales uh, with uh, with production we've said that we've said that uh, to restart MacArthur and key we'd like our portfolio to be in place so that uh, we're not spraying pounds into the spot market and so uh, I think the answer to your question is yes to both parts of the grant I don't know if you want to add anything to that
3: yeah I, I just might add Ralph think about it as kind of a market alignment strategy from a sourcing point of view, you know, we have a number of criteria that are behind our our portfolio decisions. And think about them that way. When we build a contract portfolio, it has a number of criteria. But 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 key to that is actually making sure that we've got line of sight to the sourcing. And and we've said for for some time now that, and, and Tim said it in his opening, that responsible producers in the uranium market build homes. And so for us, it really is about matching where we see the uh, the sourcing of that material right now that sourcing is largely coming from the market we've got to go in and buy obviously uh, but over time it will set the conditions that allow for the restart of of macarthur for example uh, that will then see us sourcing from tier one production which is a great day i mean that's unequivocally positive for for Camaco, of course so for us it's about this market alignment it's about never finding ourselves in a position where we're contributing to an oversupply in the market uh, that that wouldn't wouldn't be a sensible thing to do. Um, and and when the market is, is suggesting that, that those pounds aren't needed and could be, you know, purchased or picked up on the spot, we'll do that, as you've seen us do quite aggressively. So so think of it from that market alignment point of view.
5: Yeah, understood that's helpful. Um, my second question is on, on Kazakhstan and the 20% curtailment through 2023. Are you, know, are you satisfied from a prudence perspective of that type of move? Do you think they could or should have done more? And I'd like to get your insights on what it says, perhaps, about their view of the market.
2: Yeah, well, uh, these days, uh, Ralph, as you know, you can ask them uh, some of those questions. I'm sure Gallum would be more than happy to answer them. I, I think we were quite pleased to see them extend the 20% reduction into 2023. The very prudent move on on their part. Obviously, as a joint venture partner of theirs, uh, we will comply with that. And so, uh, you know, we we can only do here at camco what we can do. And you've seen us uh, take uh, take uh, leadership uh, strides uh, over there. I think uh, Gallons uh, and the Kazakhs are doing uh, what they think is necessary. And uh, the twenty percent reduction into twenty three, we think, it's very positive. So, excellent. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Ralph.
1: The next question is from Andrew Wong from RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
2: Hey,
6: good morning. Um, thanks for taking my questions. Um, so the spot in the term price um, that get quoted by, you know, like UXC, um, they're roughly at par now. And the gap between those two benchmarks has been pretty small for a while. Um, could you just talk about what's causing that dynamic and what that's telling us about the market?
2: In fact, I think I saw a little bit of backwardation in uh, the UX numbers uh, uh, this week, but uh, Grant, do you want to speak to that?
3: Yeah, Andrew, uh, it's a great question. And I, you know, at the, at the risk of uh, taking up all the remaining time on that, let me just make a couple of observations. Um, from the spot point of view, um, I, I'm not declaring that the spot price is where it needs to be, but it is up quite a ways since the supply discipline had started, up about 60%, and that's reflecting, I think, progress in... in cleaning up that spot market. And we've certainly contributed to that with our uh, major purchase. We've left pounds in the ground and we've gone and bought material instead off the market. Uh, Tim referenced uh, some junior, uh, advanced exploration companies buying. He referenced some financials buying. That's all taking material out of that spot market. It's taking material out of the hands of the financial intermediaries. It's taking material out of the churn. And that has led to some, uh, I would say positive pressure in the spot market, which is all good, it has a ways to go, but but that certainly is very very constructive. It, it it's what we absolutely needed to see. The, the term market has remained uh, more discretionary, in in part because while the spot market is is being cleaned up, it, it still is a source of carry trade for utilities. So utilities who who know that their uncovered requirements are growing and know that that global wedge. Of demand is growing uh, still see opportunities to go into the spot market or or have a financial intermediary for example offer them carry trade uh, into the nearer part of their term demand and it effectively buys them a bit more time to not really focus on the big term contracts but to take smaller bites out of the term market and so we're just not seeing that level of replacement rate term contracting occurring across the industry Um, and when we are seeing some of the bigger RFPs come to the market uh, we just we still see a few of the producers uh, who are quite eager to I would say buy that business and and that's not all bad by the way I mean we've been saying for quite some time it's important for producers to build homes all all the new interest in the uranium market which has been great has forced us to kind of revisit some of the fundamentals in our business the fundamental being the spot market uh, it is not the target market for, for production. And and so when we see producers looking to build term contract homes, that that's great news because it means that in the future, their production won't be hitting the spot market. However, that eagerness to build term homes, we're seeing... Uh, Uh, in the form of, I would say, some very competitive bids to the RFPs that are on market. One, competitive bids that we can't compete with and we won't compete with because strategically it doesn't make much sense. But the the good news is those homes are being built and and that demand uh, is calling for pounds that, that maybe in the future would have hit the spot market. Uh, but so for the term market in total, it, it's just not there yet. Uh, relative to the uncovered requirements, I think we would have expected more demand in the market than we've seen. I would just f- make the final comment that Chemical uh, though, is enjoying a, a little better uh, situation than that. We, we talk about our off-market contracting. We talk about the pipeline of negotiations. Tim referenced the over 60 million pounds that we've added to our contract portfolio. Uh, reflecting that there there is term interest, uh, it just isn't at the level right across the industry of replacement rate. So no surprise, spot market getting cleaned up, 60% increase in the spot price, more demand to come, uh, we think with some of the financials in particular, and certainly we'll have some buying to do along the way. Uh, but the term market isn't quite there yet, those two are connected. As the spot market tightens, it really will send the signal that the carry trade is going away, that buying material in smaller bits is probably not going to satisfy security of supply concerns Uh, so on balance we we think the potential is for the the term market to break back to something closer to production economics kind of break free of this anchor of the spot market it's behind our optimism andrew
6: Uh, okay that's great that's a lot of good detail thank you um maybe just like a longer term kind of question um can you share your thoughts on the development of these um, higher enriched fuels like AGU plus and and Hallyu for the um, advanced reactors? You know what what kind of impact could they have on the market and how can Chemico participate in this trend? Um, you know you have that uh, investment in GLE, which maybe longer term could be part of that. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for that question, Andrew. Uh, yeah, we're quite interested in the whole HALU. Uh, advanced fuel market, uh, fuel for SMRs. Of course, SMRs uh, getting a lot of attention these days uh, everywhere. Canada, I think there's uh, 11 or 12 different models in front of the regulator. uh, OPG looking to pick uh, a model uh, very soon, I think within the next few months, to uh, build a a demonstration project. uh, Darlington, we know Bruce is involved in B-Power, our own Saskatchewan government. Looking at them, uh, U.S., we know China is now uh, maybe ha- is leading the pack, is built one, the Russians are floating. So SMRs is uh, getting a lot of attention because they make sense. Uh, and if they can build them uh, cheaper and, and have them mobile and, and in, in places where you don't have to have huge infrastructure, it makes a lot of sense. So that's not going to put a dent in the Iranian market to, tomorrow morning. We are still relying on the uh, 443 operating reactors and the 51 plus that are under construction. Uh, but we're uh, we're looking as to how chemical can get involved. Uh, we have all the elements. We've got uh, uranium. We've got lots of it. Uh, we've got uh, refinery, a nice refinery conversion. We've got our GLE uh, project that we're standing up now in the U.S. Uh, to provide enrichment. Uh, we've Talked to a lot of companies, many, many companies, about uh, how we can play, in, especially on the fuel side. And, and so, yeah, it's, we're excited about it. It's nuclear. Uh, it's, uh, it's the nuclear of the future, I think. And, and so uh, more to come on that from us. We don't have anything to announce. Uh, we signed an MOU with uh, GE Hitachi uh, uh, on SMRs, on their SMR. They've got the X300. Uh, I think that's a, a nice model, but there are others as well. And so more to come on that, but uh, pretty exciting stuff for the future.
1: The next question is from Oris Wakadal from Scotiabank. Please go ahead.
7: Hi, good morning. Um, I'm pleased to see that um, you've announced another 7 million pounds of, of new long term contracts this quarter, uh, building on the, the 9 million pounds from, la- from last quarter. I'm just curious if you're seeing now a real pickup in movement here from utilities from a recontracting perspective and whether. You know that these contracts are starting to build momentum on each other, and whether we should anticipate more following now that sort of the door has been open. Any
2: context would be appreciated. Grant, you want to take
3: that? Yeah, Oris. I would say that um, there is no doubt that every time we talk about more of our future production being claimed, it, it does it does create interest from others who aren't part of uh, making those claims. But l- let me just. Be cautious here. It hasn't translated yet into kind of an industry level. We haven't seen that kick over to uh, frequent on-market RFPs that would suggest a, a real uh, security of supply contracting cycle is underway across the industry. So, so for us, it, it is positive. It, it I, I think it makes uh, some of our customers wonder why they're why. why their colleagues are contracting and they're not, and uh, you know, how much uh, Canadian Cameco supply has already been claimed and what's left for them. So very positive for us, but, but it hasn't yet translated into kind of that security of supply shift at the industry level. Uh, l- let's face it, in, in the past, that trigger has always been shock-driven whether it was the supply shock of, for example, 2006, the Cigar Lake Development Project flooding, Uh, whether it was the demand shock of 2010, the Chinese stepping into the term market for the first time and contracting a lot of uranium, it it tends to be a a bit of a shock event that, that causes everybody to try to go through the door at the same time. Uh, and, and I would just say, if we if we look at the market, if we look at the, the forward view of productive capacity on a primary basis and on a secondary basis and juxtapose that to uncovered requirements, this market is as vulnerable to a shock as it's ever been. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's building in that direction. Oris, I, I just want to be careful not to call that today, but pr- certainly positive for us.
7: Thank you. Thanks for the color, Grant. And then just separately, I, I noticed in your release, there's some comments about some initiatives to materially reduce your holding costs, your standby costs with the shut-in with MacArthur River and, I guess, the other assets. Can you give us some insight in terms of, um, you know, what you're thinking there, what the timeline might be to get some color and, um, you know, what, what kind of impact this could have?
3: Yeah, Or so what we're referring to there is the, the projects that we have on underway at, uh, at MacArthur and Key. Remember, they've been in care and maintenance uh, since 2018, actually, which is a long time to have the world's best mine and mill complex uh, in care and maintenance. But it hasn't been like a quiet site because what we've done is we've said, look, wh- while these assets are down, this is the absolute best time to unpack every process, every procedure. Uh, look at opportunities for us to uh, to harness the very best of digitization and automation technologies that we're seeing adopted elsewhere. Not not a, a, an R&D project, but, but really an applied technology project to take the best of what we see elsewhere, bring it to our facilities, do that while they're down so that when they come back, they come back even better uh, than when we brought them down. So th- those are the types of initiatives that we're referring to. Uh, making those investments counter cyclically it's prudent for us to do uh, it's one of the reasons why we've had such a very conservative financial management so that we can be poised to, to make those kind of prudent counter cyclical investments when they make sense and right now is when it makes sense
2: or I or just to add to that, that the, the most difficult piece of that often is the change management piece when you've got a fully staffed uh, site with uh, seven eight hundred people involved and, and you're trying to implement change uh the change management piece getting the people to adapt new new habits is, is tough and so while our site's down uh, our people are off i think we only have about 100 people on care and maintenance it's the right time to implement those and, and the day we do bring the people back it'll be we're going to have to train them differently get them prepared differently for uh for a different site uh kind of a, a mine and mill of the future so that's why we're doing it now as well thank you
1: The next question is from Katie LeChapelle from Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead.
6: Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Uh, Now that the Sprout Physical Uranium Trust arrangement has closed and started trading, I was just wondering if you could provide your thoughts on both when and how you think this new entity could impact pricing moving forward. And just based on your knowledge, is this something that you think utilities are recognizing and and are maybe perhaps worried about?
2: Thanks, Katie, for the question. Uh, we're pretty excited to see Sprott uh, in the business now. you have got lots of experience in in metals funds and uh, at the market, uh, in the market uh, with metals and uh, have a big market presence, I think. And so, you know, Grant uh, is, uh, has been studying them and, and looking at Sprott. Grant, why don't you go ahead?
3: Yeah, we certainly think that there is potential for this to be actually quite transformative to... Uh, a price discovery in the spot market. As, as, as I think a lot of folks know, uh, you've heard me say a lot of times, the spot market's not the fundamental market. It's a market where um, we, we've seen it punished, if you will, by uncommitted primary production that didn't have a home. It's why I keep talking about responsible producers being ones who are building homes. And as that material came into the spot market, it often ended up in the hands of financial intermediaries who would churn it through the market and 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 really be able to be in a position to offer the market down without actually making a transaction just by hanging offer after offer over the spot market, and we'd see the spot market walk down. But nobody actually put their income statement on the line and consolidated a transaction. And that was possible because you had the offers outmatch the bids in the spot market. So along comes a physical trust that is proposing to have a far more frequent bid in the market, uh, a physical trust that – uh, is, is, I think, designed to impute what investors believe the, pl- the price of uranium should be. And I think, by and large, most investors view that this price of uranium is not linked to production economics and that it does have to transition in order to create that link. And that would suggest that investors would be very supportive of, of that trust model, be happy to uh, to invest, uh, perhaps on a daily basis, allowing, allowing that fund to go in and, and have a far more frequent and consistent bid in the market and and we've seen in the past if that occurred that will back up some of the selling it'll back up some of the offers and it will help contribute to a transition back to production economics away from surplus disposal Um, you know and, and I guess we sort of look at it as having a plenty of upside and you know perhaps very little downside because if 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 those folks decide to go a different route and maybe run the fund like it used to be run well well, we know what that's like. I mean, it would just go in the market every now and then and, and buy and then sit back and, and, and wait for the market to appreciate up to a point where you can go back in. It wouldn't be as as fun and it certainly wouldn't be transformative. But if they go the former route and, and actually do uh, start to impute investors view of where the price of uranium should be, it really will take a lot of the judgment and a lot of the, um, I, I would say, um, uh, discretion that sometimes gets uh <laughs> imputed by the trade report it'll t- it'll take it out of their hands and and make the spot price far more transparent and far more transaction based quite frankly that's good for everybody
6: awesome that's all from you guys thanks
3: thanks Katie.
1: the next question is from greg barnes from td securities please go ahead
8: yeah thank you granted Several quarters now, you've been saying that you have a large volume of off-market discussions with utilities regarding additional contracting activity. Yeah. This quarter, you're saying negotiations continue on business opportunities remaining in that pipeline. That sounds a little less optimistic, I, I guess, than it has in the past couple of quarters. You've done a fair amount of contracting. Is that slowing, I guess, is the question.
3: Yeah, sorry. Absolutely, did not mean to uh, to create the impression that it's a pipeline and we're drawing it down. I mean, uh, we're we're quite excited by um, by the opportunities that are in there. We're not going to get every opportunity because, of course, as as Tim said in his opening comments, we're we're being very strategically patient. We're we're trying to find those opportunities that make sense for us. And quite frankly, some of the folks want to take advantage of of what are low prices and. Uh, We'll turn to other producers to satisfy that. So we're not going to get all the business in there. You don't want us to get all the business in there, but, but, but I would say, um, you know, when 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 uh, when we get on a call like this and we talk about the term market being quiet, one of the first calls I get is from our vice president of marketing who says, "What are you talking about? Because you know we're we're quite busy. Let me remind you, dealing with all of these opportunities that we see coming our way." So did not mean to send the impression that. That, that Camco's pipeline uh, is shrinking in any way. Um, as I mentioned to Orris, we sort of see it as, as, as we, as we announce that that more contract commitments have been layered on, that actually creates more interest in, in our in our pipeline and in our future supply because it starts to build a sense that, well, how much of Camco's future supply has already been claimed, and, and you know, if I want some of it in my diversified portfolio, I'd, I'd better talk to them. So. Absolutely, did not mean to send that impression, Greg. Okay,
8: thanks. And just the situation with the CRA and, and their new way of reassessing 2014. Uh, trying to understand, again, the wording in the MDNA, it, it said it would result in a less adverse, albeit still material, adjustment to taxable income in Canada for 2014. But then you go on to say your initial view is that. This methodology would not result in a materially different outcome for 2014.
2: Greg, can I uh, get Sean Quinn to uh, to answer that? Sean's obviously uh, been on this file for about 13 years, so Sean, why don't you answer Greg's question?
3: Uh, Sure, Greg. Um, The uh, reason we we don't think it's a materially different outcome at the end of the day is we think this new uh, assessment ground that has been raised for 2014. Uh, would be unsuccessful if pursued by the CRA. So at the end of the day, we don't think that there is a significant
7: problem with that here. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. Thanks, Greg.
1: The next question is from Lawson Winder from Bank of America Securities. Please go ahead.
4: Hi, good morning, guys. Uh, thanks for taking the call. I'd like to uh, ask again about the uh, um, digital and automation and your statement uh, that it has the potential to eliminate care and maintenance costs. Um, How how are you thinking about that? How is it possible that you could eliminate care and maintenance costs without restarting those mines? And um, yeah, that's a
2: question. Yeah.
4: Again,
2: if we left that impression, that would, absolutely we're not eliminating care and maintenance costs. That's, that's not, uh, not possible. But uh, you know, when we do come back, we, we would have uh, uh, a more streamlined, uh, more digitized uh, uh, system up at, at Key Lake and MacArthur, and uh, which, uh, you know, that's where we'd be more streamlined. Certainly there's no no way we're eliminating
4: care and maintenance costs, not at all. Um, and then um, just respect to uh, specific numbers here. So I think uh, the, the latest study was somewhere around $15 Canadian per pound uh, marginal operating costs, or, or or um, C1 cash costs for uh, MacArthur River in your latest study. Now, is there a potential to materially lower that as a result of uh, your digital and automation work? So
2: that's exactly the goal, Austin, is to do that uh, materially if we can, but uh, we'll take anything. So, uh, you know, if you can uh, digitize, uh, mechanize, uh, robotize, if that's a word, uh, some of the processes and circuits, in in the mill, especially, uh, we'd want to bring down our our operating costs. Absolutely, so that is the
4: goal clearly. Um, if if I might ask just one more, uh, the 16 million pounds now so far this year of uh, contracting, how is that spread around the world? Is that uh, more Western or more uh, Asian clients? Thanks. Brad?
3: Yeah. I would say in terms of the regional distribution you're seeing a, a bias towards I let's call it more our more traditional markets in uh, in North America in uh, western Europe as opposed to the emerging markets which which of course you should take as very positive because it suggests that that growing demand in those emerging markets has not yet shown up which is obviously very good news. Uh, so yeah, the, it's more the, the the traditional customer base who have been through this before. Uh, I think who are recognizing that uh, that there's a fundamental story that's not building in their favor, and quite frankly, I think maybe concluding that there's probably first mover advantages for them uh, if they if they move now. So that that would be
4: more of the distribution. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lawson.
1: The next question is from alexander pierce from bmo please go ahead
9: thank you uh, morning so um i know, noticed obviously you've pushed up sales volumes uh, uh expectations this year for fuel services i just wonder maybe you could um, provide a bit of an update on the market there and, and obviously you're halfway through the year maybe you can give us a a view on where you think conversion, et cetera, is going into uh, into next year. Obviously, there's a bit of um, you know, some capacity
3: changes over the next uh, next couple of years.
2: Yeah, thanks, Alex.
3: Grant. Yeah, Alex, the, the conversion market in particular, uh, not as hot as it was in 2020, that's for sure. I think you'll recall that in 2020, we... We sold forward as much conversion uh, as probably we ever have in a 12-month window. So that was not just hitting replacement rate, but going well beyond. Been a bit of consolidation, I would say, in the conversion market, especially with the announcement of Converdyne coming back. Now it's a a few years and and quite a bit of money uh, before they're back up and running. Uh, And that was also combined with Arano putting out uh, some statements about not just – successfully getting to the 7,500 tons of their first module, but but maybe going to 15,000 tons. Obviously not an overly helpful announcement in the conversion space, but that's led to a, a bit of uh, consolidation for sure. But as you can see, there's still opportunities for us, and those opportunities are in the nearer term uh, bef- before full commissioning in, in France and before Converdine is back up and running. And and make no mistake, we'll, we'll we'll take those opportunities because conversion remains uh, very attractively priced, and and those prices support our fuel services division very nicely. Okay, thank you. thank you.
4: Thanks, Alex.
1: The next question is from Brian MacArthur from Raymond James. Please go ahead.
10: Good morning, and thanks for taking my questions. Um, there's some language in the. MDNA talking about uh, potentially um deferral and project work and maybe impact the next year's production. I mean I, I realize these are very high grade mines and you have a lot of flexibility, but can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Is that is that more labor? Or are you actually seeing supply chain issues? So
4: you know there really could be an
10: impact on cigar. And maybe a second question moving longer term. You know, you talk about digitization of MacArthur making it better, but there's also cautionary language that you may have issues or equipment for that going forward. I mean, you're trying to balance that that you don't want to you know, bring it back until you have contracts, but how are you ensuring that you actually have the pipeline of material ready to bring, that MacArthur comes back when you want it as expected? Because as you mentioned, it has been down for a number of years. Is the, Are you getting a lot more concerned on supply chain issues for equipment to, to actually be able to bring this back um, when you want to?
3: Yeah, Brian, thank you for those questions. Our, our securities lawyers will be delighted you did a deep dive into our risk factors. I think we sometimes wonder if anybody reads them. So thanks for doing that. Um, obviously, when it, when you think about Cigar Lake, um, we, we always want to remind folks that when you curtail an asset, uh, you, you're curtailing two things, aren't you? you? You're curta- curtailing the in-year production, but you're also curtailing the activities required for future production. So what you're picking up is that risk to say, look, if, if we don't have Cigar Lake operating for – for COVID reasons, it's not just this year's production that gets affected, it's it's the development of the mine required for future production. And and obviously now that it's restarted, we've restarted in-year production and we've restarted mine development. And so we just, you know, it's prudent to flag that as a risk that that uh, if there are disruptions to the mine development plan for future production, that will affect future production. And, and you know, quite frankly, uh, we're not afraid of that as a risk, Brian, because that that's actually connected to our supply discipline strategy. So it, it you know it doesn't really uh, it's it's not orthogonal to what we're trying to accomplish uh, at MacArthur. Uh, Brian was uh, Brian Riley, our chief operating officer, was on a, a number of quarters ago to sort of discuss where MacArthur was from a, a risk point of view, and just to I, I would say calm any nerves about the situation at MacArthur. Uh, regular risks, as you say, it's been down for a while. Uh, There's no doubt about it, but we've continued to have, we think, the appropriate people there, both keeping the physical capital and the human capital in in good condition and getting it ready or keeping it on, on standby so that when we do call for that production, it's there for us. At the moment, we don't see a significant penalty capital that we've incurred because it's been down we we've deferred capital uh for the time it restarts but but that's not the same as penalty capital that's just capital we chose not to spend so you're, you're picking up i think some prudent risk language that we bury into those risk factors for sure uh but by and large we're, you know that we're very confident with where we're at with Cigar Lake, and we're very confident with this, the state of uh, care and maintenance at MacArthur Key. And and if we weren't, you, you'd actually see us have to to spend some money and, uh, and and be very clear about those capital spends.
4: Great.
10: Thanks for the color. Maybe switching to another topic. Um, you did mention GLE again, and it was asked earlier. So, so to the extent you can, because I realize it's competitive, what exactly... I mean, we had a pilot plant years ago and whatever. Are we actually trying to scale this now? Or what's actually going on in, um, at GLE right now?
2: Well, Brian, we spent the last uh, number of months uh, putting uh, the deal together where, uh, along with Silex, Camco takes over ownership of, of, of GLE and uh, and and stands up the company and so we're really in that process right now populating uh, it with some uh, real real strong talent and so uh, and then uh, you know we're looking as to where we can play we've got options for gle uh, the U market just uh, pure enrichment uh, we've got those doe tails uh, that are available to us if that makes sense uh, and so it's pretty exciting Uh, you know we've looked for a long time uh, for an entry point into the enrichment market and those aren't easy there's a lot of barriers to entry there and so uh, we think we we might have a pathway here and so we're going to we're going to push it along
4: great
1: the next question is from gordon johnson from glj research please go ahead
9: Hey, guys, thanks for taking the questions. Um, a lot of our questions have been answered, but I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, uh, Uranium Trading Corporation being the second private financier uh, to announce the purchase of uranium. Um, and clearly, you guys already talked about Sprout, but just given we're seeing more of these uh, transactions announced, I wanted to get your thought on if we'll see more and kind of how you guys see that impacting uh, the broader dynamic.
3: Yeah, it's a great question, and you're absolutely right to say it's been a very active part of the space. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's pretty clear to us that some of the people are coming to it uh, because of an understanding uh, of the uranium market and the fundamentals and how uranium actually creates value through a marketing program, not not being dumped into the spot market. Uh, but some are coming to us just because they're doing the statistical analysis and say, look, this is a commodity that's got – uh, a very low probability of going down and not very far and a very high probability of going up and probably a long way. So there is quite a, a variation, I would say, of, of the interest in it. Um, some of it is, is public and you've heard about and some of it uh, is private. Uh, and uh, I would say the, uh, the most important aspect of a successful financial hold in uranium is, is to hold it is to not think well we're going to get into the uranium business and we're going to have this little trading book that we're going to flip and we're going to create some positive carry and maybe sign a little contract or two with a utility in order to cover management fees those don't work um and, and that's why they've they've come and gone but that's not what we're hearing from the narrative now the narrative really is kind of an understanding that this is a market that uh, that structurally is positioned for a transition and uh, better to be in now than after the transition occurred and and, and I would say a very helpful understanding that, that actually uh, grabbing some material and hanging on to it more in a permanent capital uh, framework uh, is probably the wiser thing to do so uh, we're, we're seeing interest uh, it's continuing and uh, it, it's more appropriate than I would say some of the interest we've seen in the past
9: okay that's helpful and, and i always ask this one but I'll, I'll ask it again um you know the contracts in china are quite dated any update there with respect to renewals um and, and just last question taking a step back you know um uh, widely popular ev ceo uh, elon musk mentioned recently that um, uranium makes sense and it seems like the biden administration is kind of warming up to the idea um uh, that you know if you want a real solution to co2 uranium's the way we're seeing issues in California with respect to power outages and energy prices increasing. Can you guys talk about, just from a, a broader perspective, if you're seeing a further change and increase in sentiment? Thank you for the questions.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks, uh, Gordon. Uh, I can get on the soapbox here for about the next half hour if you like, uh, talking about climate change and, and global warming. <laughs> then you know the uh, mega trends of electrification and decarbonization and and where everyone's going all you know who hasn't set a net zero target uh you know in by 2030 2035 uh and and quite frankly and this is a personal thought it's, i think there's a lot of hope and and a bit of hypocrisy in that uh, we need to there's a bit of a gap between the the, the rhetoric and, and reality and, and we've got to start looking at action plans and how we're going to get there now uh, with this massive electrification, you know, all electric cars by I don't know what year and billions being spent and so that's all positive for us because, uh, you know, I I keep quoting our our famous uh, energy and mines minister here in Canada, Seamus O'Regan, you know, there is there's no path to net zero that doesn't drive by a nuclear plant. And so that's real positive for us. The US has been super positive. Uh, with the biden administration the first day they came in they cancelled keystone and signed paris and uh, since then uh, we've seen uh, them make a lot of moves uh, they uh, set a clean energy standard uh, for clean electricity fossil fuel free electricity by 2035 uh, you know secretary uh, Grandholm very positive on nuclear uh, uh, john kerry uh, gina mccarthy all of those things so you know, we're watching uh, the Exelon units uh, to see if they uh, if they get uh, get a survival uh, line thrown to them, uh, and so uh, yeah, lots of positive things going on in that front, and, and all positive for us. We think we think nuclear has to be in the picture going forward, uh, and uh, and so we're super positive. On China, we continue to uh, to talk to the Chinese. Uh, Grant, I don't know if we can give much of an update on well, that, but they're they're certainly in the market.
3: Yeah, I mean, China's an example of uh, of a country that is putting action to the rhetoric. A, a 2060 net zero carbon target that lo- has led to uh, very significant near-term increases in nuclear uh, nuclear's role in their overall grid. You're talking about, you know, a handful more reactors in the next five years. You're talking about a target... Uh, mid next decade of 200 gigawatts. Uh, that's a combination of what will be operating and what will be under construction. You know, at that kind of target, China alone would be consuming 100 million pounds of uranium. Uh, primary production last year was 120 million pounds. So, so one, one country would be calling for 100 million of 120 million supply stack. It's, it's quite a- astonishing. Um, the, the Chinese have kind of, uh, you know, we used to think of them as China Inc, if you will, as one group, but you really actually see different behaviors from the different entities in China. You see one uh, one of the utilities has actually become very active in owning assets abroad and, and having a supply abroad and, and having, you know, in, in particular, African material and, and in the future some Kazakh material coming in uh, directly to their account, which would offset some of their purchases, of course, Uh, We don't see the other utility being quite as aggressive with uh, securing their own supply and probably, therefore, far more uh, market-reliant going forward. And and as I said in in response to an earlier question uh, with respect to where our contracts currently are coming from, the traditional markets, well, it's very very positive when you think about these big emerging markets have not really come back yet. And, And we saw what happened last time they came back in a big way. So... You know china's a country that's putting action to the words uh nuclear is key to getting that clean grid and and we actually think that that demand is uh, is in front not not behind hey guys uh thanks a lot i
9: could just get one more sneak one more in what would you guys say conversely is the biggest challenge you face um you know we've seen ups and downs in just the equity valuations which isn't indicative of your your overall business but what would you say the biggest challenge you're hearing out there is from maybe some of the investors you're talking to, it, and how would you address that? Thanks, guys.
2: I don't know if I have a good uh, good answer to that. Uh, we're pretty happy with way, the way things are moving. Maybe uh, the market's not moving uh, quite as quickly as we'd like on the term market, but uh, other than that, uh, the company's in good shape. We're uh, certainly uh, in a, our balance sheet is strong. Our operations are running well when we're not threatened by covid <laughs> or forest fires, uh, and uh, we're optimistic for the future. So, uh, you know, I I, I don't know. Of course, uh, we worry about lots of things all the time. That's our job, but nothing in particular.
1: The next question is from Jessica Sangara from Nuclear Intelligence Weekly. Please go
8: ahead.
0: Hi guys, thanks for taking my call and good morning. Um, I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on Cameco's, uh strategy with regard to the carry trade. Um, I know we have some backwardation and you mentioned some competitive um, offers from producers that seems to be driving some of that backwardation. Um, and also, uh, with... Um, regard to, you know, future market trends. Um, once the market goes back into contango, I wonder what your expectations of the carry trade might
3: be then.
5: Great.
3: Yeah, great questions. We, we see the carry trade as being less impactful on the market than it, than it had been in the past, obviously. Um, and that, that's just a function of the spot market uh, thinning out. Uh, we, you know, we've talked about a 60% rise in the spot market since the supply discipline strategy. It's closed the gap uh, with the term price. Uh, you know, I, I think not too long ago there was a lot of concern about inflation and where interest rates would be. Well, that undermines the carry trade as well. To, to the extent that maybe that concern is now replaced with the Delta variant and the idea of more stimulus and perhaps uh, lower interest rates. Well, I, again, that will come back in from the carry trade. But but ultimately, carry trade works uh, when you have uh, uncommitted primary production coming into the spot market. and And the good news is, from a producer point of view, that that's going down. You you've seen assets retired, Ranger, Cominac. Uh, you you just you, there's less material showing up, reflected in a higher spot price. And so the carry trade uh, will be there, but but probably a, a, a less important factor. And and as it starts to tighten and the spot market gets closer to the term price, uh, that, that's when the conversations really flip over to okay well well, now it doesn't seem advantageous to try to secure spot material and carry it into the near term of my demand I, I might as well look at term demand and and so that i think is what reflects the 60 million plus that we've been successful in adding into our contract portfolio uh, we'd obviously like to see more utilities realize that um uh, and that's to come because that demand is not going anywhere it's, it's still there and needs to be satisfied Uh, So it just leaves us quite constructive, and I think that's captured in in Tim's optimistic view. Thank
9: you.
2: Thanks, Jessica.
1: The next question is from Patrick Sojeki, a private investor. Please go ahead.
7: Uh, Hi. Good morning, guys. Um, My question is in uh, in this environment uh, with uh, sort of central banks, printing uh, it's no end in sight is uh, is chemical managing their cash balance any differently um, say putting maybe some of it into like uh, maybe carrying a higher inventory or something other than uh, cash which is losing
2: purchasing power at an increasing rate thank you yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the question, Patrick. I'll turn that to the CFO.
3: Yeah, Patrick, thank you for that question. O- obviously, um, our very conservative financial management has come with an opportunity cost, and that is, you know, we've 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 been sitting on cash, and that cash hasn't been earning a lot of money. But but what it's been doing is, is uh, I think creating a virtual guarantee for our owners that we can self manage risk. That as we go through the supply discipline strategy, as we we deal with the purchasing we need to do to cover the gap between where our committed sales are and where our production is. As we carry the care and maintenance costs and then, of course, deal with unplanned shutdowns, things like COVID, um, our owners can, can be assured there'll be no awkward lurches to the capital markets because we, we didn't have the financial resources to deal with this. As the business case improves, as we lock in more contracts, as we get more certainty and predictability around when that MacArthur restart is uh, you know at at that point in time if if we're still sitting on these kind of cash balances um, there will be too much and 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 at that point we'll we'll have to look at ways to reduce that either um, give it back to the owners or if we've got a compelling uh, use for it that can generate an acceptable return we'd make the case for that but right now we're still kind of in this uh, prudent role here of uh, being very financially conservative and then we'll look at things like when when the market begins to transition in a more aggressive way. What is our role for buying not just the inventory, not just the material we need for our committed sales, but perhaps a little bit more? I mean, normally it's not advantageous for Cameco to sit on an inventory, and the and the reason is we we become an overhang. Time and time again, you know, we find ourselves in conversations with with our best customers where we'd say we're looking at your uncovered requirements and we think you should start buying uranium and they'd say well we're looking at your inventory and we think you should start selling and and so it created no advantage for us to be carrying that kind of inventory but but if it if we saw that transition you could expect us to be a a very aggressive buyer and deploying some capital that way Um, but the good news is those are choices that we have and those choices are a result uh of of the prudent financial management that we've been engaged in
7: perfect thank you
2: thanks patrick
1: this concludes the question and answer session i would like to turn the conference back over to kim tim gitzel for any closing remarks
2: well thank you operator and with that i just want to say thanks to everybody that joined us on the call today we uh, as always appreciate your interest and support just just a couple closing comments I I just say again that uh, we're excited about the future we're seeing for nuclear power generation we're excited about uh, what we're seeing uh, in the fundamentals of uranium supply and demand and we're certainly excited about the prospects for our company as you know we're a responsible commercial supplier with a strong balance sheet long-lived tier one assets and a proven operating track record and I can just tell you, we will continue to do what we say we would do. We'll execute on our strategy and consistent with our values, we'll do so in a manner that we believe will make our business sustainable over the long term. And, and as always, we'll continue to make the health and safety of our workers, their families, and their communities our priority. So with that, I say thanks again, everybody. Uh, stay safe and healthy and, and have a great summer. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
1: Concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day.